What would it be like to see the universe as God sees it? You know, you and I are limited by space. Uh, we're limited by time. We're limited by gravity and light. I'm probably going to have a scientist or, or two talk to me after I share my limited information about this. But I, as I understand it, light travels at 186,282 miles per second, give or take a few feet. And, uh, and apparently that's faster than any matter can travel. It's the fastest thing in the universe. Some scientists speculate that if we could travel faster than the speed of light, we could go back in time. I don't know about forward in time. I think it's just back, but I, I really, I'm not the scientist, so I don't, I don't know. But what if we could eliminate all of those limitations? What if we could experience the universe like God experiences it? You know, the God that said, let there be light. He, he's not constrained by light, is he? So if we were to, to do this, we would maybe move back a little farther away from our earth, uh, which God said he created in six days, by the way, a snap for him. We could see the galaxies and uh, remove the, the elements of gravity and, and, and light, and you could see those galaxies interacting with each other and moving over many years. Maybe uh, travel through the web of space. Some, some call it uh, this massive universe. You know, God, he sees all of this, and he's bigger than that. He's bigger than the universe. He created it all. Maybe bigger isn't the right word. Maybe it's vastness. I'm not sure exactly how to describe it because I don't understand everything about God, but I know that he, he's not something that can be contained by the creature's and the elements that he created. He's more vast than that. So vast that, that nothing that he's created can contain him. And so vast that he can be involved intimately in every part of his creation, including your life and mine. He is this limitless God, the creator of the universe. And he takes a personal interest in you and me. I think that's just amazing. And so God says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, and but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." If I were to summarize this idea, just, just the summary of what God is trying to say, he's saying, don't put me in a box. Don't try to uh, use one of my creations as a stand-in for me. It just won't work, especially not an idol that you make. It's a funny idea to think that the God who created me, I could limit him and, and, and try to make him look like one of his other creations. And, and even more ridiculous to think that I could limit him even more by putting him in one of my creations. It doesn't make any sense, does it? And, and I think that's one of the God's points. It, this doesn't make sense. Idolatry just doesn't make sense. And so God says he's a jealous God. And I think about this idea of jealousy, and I don't think God is the selfish kind of jealous. You know, the kind of jealous I would get if uh, 
I perceived my wife was getting too close to some other guy or, or the kind of jealous that we have when, when somebody um, has something or is using something of ours. My kids get this jealousy a lot. They, like, another friend is sharing their toy and they want it back. They're like, you're having too much fun with my toy. <laughs> it's not that kind of jealous that God has. It's a, jealous, a jealousy on our behalf. You see, he's jealous because he knows that he is the only thing that can satisfy our needs that can fulfill our longings, and that anything else that we try to put in God's place is going to harm us. And so he's jealous on our behalf. He wants our love because he knows that it's the only thing that's good for us. He wants our worship because he is worthy of our worship. The word worship actually includes the word worth. We don't see the TH, but worthship is really what we're talking about. Worship is, is a thing that you give to somebody who's worthy uh, and, and that it demonstrates that this person or this being is, is so worthy of praise and devotion that nothing else compares. Only God is really worthy of worship. Everybody else is inferior. Everything else is incomplete. Everything is just a creation of the one who is truly worthy. In his book, the laws of the heart, Bill Hybels asserts that it's so much easier for us to change God than it is for us to conform to his will. Who wants an accurate image of a sovereign God when they can create a convenient image that never interferes with their selfish desires? In the second of the Ten Commandments, God is forbidding this self-willed worship. If you remember he gives this command, but he also lays out all this list of things that they're supposed to be doing to worship him. Uh, among them is building a sanctuary where he can dwell with them. And, and as he uh, is, is there dwelling with them, he invites them to bring a sacrifice and to confess their sins. And, and then there's all these ceremonies and all these uh, festivals and fun things like that. And, and so he designs a worship system for them. Now, I have to admit that I... There are kind of two ways I could have gone about the sermon. One way is to explore what this worship really is all about. What does it mean to worship God? And, and we could talk about how Jesus fulfilled all of those things in the, the sanctuary service. And, and then he replaced some of those things with new things that we can do. Instead of uh, offering a sacrifice, we pray to Jesus and he is our sacrifice. Instead of um, the labor we have the foot washing and the baptism. Instead of the, um, the, oh, the, the thing they did right, after, uh, right as they were leaving Egypt. Uh, <laughs> I had it on the tip of my tongue. The Passover, thank you. Instead of the Passover, we have the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Well, not really. That We call it the Lord's Supper, right? Um, but we have this, this special ceremony. And instead of all these festivals, we come together on a regular basis, weekly or even better sometimes, so that we can celebrate the grace of Christ, so that we can learn more about him, and so we can launch each other out into this world as witnesses for Christ. These are, are ways that we worship God. And I could have explored that and really gone into some depth because there is quite a bit that we could think about there. Um, but I, I decided that I would go a different direction. And one of the, the many... Um, one of the many ways that people like to explore the second commandment is to explore what it means to have an, a modern idol. 
And that's another direction I could have gone, but I, I, I decided I didn't want to go that way. But just for the fun of it, uh, things that are modern idols, I think of the crucifix. Not, the, not that the cross is a bad thing as kind of a logo. I think Pastor Jeff talked about that a couple weeks ago. Uh, a symbol of Christianity, the sacrifice of Christ. But it's incomplete as a symbol of Jesus. Uh, because God is so much bigger than just the offering of himself on the cross. And so when somebody uses it as a good luck charm and hangs it in their, their review, on their rearview mirror or around their neck, um, when somebody holds on to it as they pray as some kind of a mechanism for, for worship, then it becomes an idol. And, uh, and it's an incomplete picture of God. Or we could talk about prayer beads that people use as they repeat some Christian mantras they're just like the prayer wheels of the Tibetan monks that they go and, and spin. There's really no difference. Um, another mechanism for containing God. Um, you know, we could talk about religious icons and so many other things. Or we could go the direction of the, that worship, or rather idolatry, is really something that starts in the heart. It's how we confine God in, and how we limit God in our imagination that begins our plunge into idolatry because we only make an idol after we have a misconception of God. We could talk about all that, but we're in a, uh, a series of uh, sermons discovering kind of the opposite of what that law describes. We're, we're turning our back, so to speak, on the fence that keeps us away from evil, and we're looking at the field of opportunities that it allows. What, what is the second commandment encouraging us? What direction are, should we go in is really the question that we want to answer today. And so the, the first thing I wanted to mention is that when we keep the, the second commandment and we don't have other idols, we don't limit God in our perceptions. When we do that, then we open up an opportunity for knowing God. Does that make sense? We're either constraining God or refusing to constrain him. We have an opportunity to know him. I think that's a really cool opportunity. And it gives us something, something new. Um, if our minds were open to knowing God, to fully understanding him, what would we find out? We wouldn't be able to put him into this package, have him placed on our mantle. Um, we wouldn't just be seeking God for the fulfillment of our needs. We'd be exploring who God is. So if God can't be constrained by us, I was thinking about this process, if, if we can't put him in a box, and if we choose not to interact with him as like a, a God that we force to come into our lives when we pray, that we force to uh, interact with us in a certain way, then, then that means that every interaction God has with us is intentional. He comes to us. If we can't constrain him, if, if we can't control him, then, then God is choosing to interact with us. That's a whole different ballgame. Is, is it more exciting when you have to grab somebody's attention or when they choose to give you their attention? My son and daughter like to get my attention, and sometimes, sometimes I'm doing something else, and uh, it's just not, not a good time. And so they come and they pull on my arm, or they drag me into some place by my pinky finger, um, or they uh, just nag me, and they, they papa, 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 all, all the time. And, and I'm just not wanting to pay attention to them. If I, if I 
take my focus away from what I'm doing and I give them my attention, they like that. But you know what they like even better? Is when without, me, without them having to ask, I go and find out what they're doing. And I go and discover what's going on in their little hearts. That means so much more to them. And I think that we should think of God as that interactive, intentional God. Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. See, we're the ones responding to God. He's knocking. He's coming to our home. He's interacting with us. And then in 1 John 4.19, we're told that we love because he first loved us. He initiates. We respond. I think that's so much more awesome than the, than the God that we could contain in an idol or in a, a perception of ourselves. There we go. Those prayer wheels. I mentioned them earlier and I just wanted to explore the idea a little bit because they're a good example of this idea of idolatry. Inside the prayer wheel is this life tree. Don't ask me what a life tree is. I have not explored Buddhism this much. But um, there's a life tree, and around that are wrapped sometimes thousands of mantras, sometimes millions with the biggest ones. And uh, the Tibetan Buddhists suggest that when you go by um, the uh, prayer wheel and you, you spin it, you are harnessing all the power uh, to, to call God down to, to answer your need or whatever as if you had said those thousands or even millions of mantras and and i could i thought of telling you one of the most popular mantras but then i thought somebody would would uh, suggest i was promoting buddhism so i I decided not to share that Um, but if you imagine this this misconception of god that god He's so busy that you have to just keep asking and keep asking and keep asking because he's going he's gonna to ignore you otherwise because he's got too many things going. Or that, that he's, maybe you can catch him as he goes by on another errand. Or maybe that he's um, doing something that's kind of loud and you have to yell really loud. I mean, this is just what Elijah was saying to the, the uh, Baal uh, priests on the top of Mount Carmel. Um, maybe your God is uh, using the bathroom. <laughs> right? Maybe your God, he's making fun of them, but it's, it's this misconception that God, he, he, has to be, he has to be captured or we have to capture his attention in some way in order for us to engage with him, and that's just not true. It's a false conception, and it, and it messes up how we perceive God. God is unbounded, and yet he's very interested in you and I. He's untamable, but he's good. C.S. Lewis, in his series, The Chronicles of Narnia, it's a Christian uh, fantasy series. Uh, We could talk about what that means. I I won't go into it, but uh, he has this character in there, and Aslan is this lion that represents Jesus in this other world. And so ignore all the fantasy stuff and and, uh, fiction and whatever else you might think about, and just just think about Aslan's, or uh, C.S. Lewis's idea of Aslan. Somebody says of Aslan that he's not a tame lion, but then quickly follows up that he is good. You know, we, I think C.S. Lewis captures a struggle that we have. We want a tame God, a God we can put on a leash. God is not tame. He is not something we can constrain to our own ideas. We really would like that. Admit it, you want to contain God into your perceptions, right? 
You want him to be you know, that, that God that's uh, on that throne somewhere past Orion. Right? You want him to be something that is easy to understand, but we just can't put God into our limited language. We can't put God into our limited perceptions. We're human. He's not. And, and that's something we should recognize. Idolatry just doesn't make sense. One of the examples uh, that I think really helps me understand who God is is something God said about himself. And it's when he interacted with Moses on the top of the mountain. And uh, this, this encounter is a really beautiful thing. God is there. Moses is there. Moses says, I want to see you. God puts him in a, a crag in a rock. He puts his hand over him. He passes by. And what we want to do is we want to say, what does God look like? Uh, so it's this beauty of God, and we explore what it means if God actually exposed himself fully to Moses because then that would, like, Moses would die or something. And, and we try to figure out all these things about God's awesomeness. It's the thunder. It's the lightning. It's the voice. It's the trumpets. It's whatever we can try to nail down that's, that is God. We want, a, we want a, a perception of God that we can understand. But God is, he's spelling out the point here, not by what he looks like, but by what he says. And this is what he says about himself. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 to 8. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the, the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is the, the kind of God that we see is, are, are these amazing characteristics. Of course, Moses immediately bows his head and worships because he sees a God that is worthy of worship. The first of these characteristics are all wonderful, relational, loving kind of characteristics. And then there's those last two that we kind of wonder about. But I love how it, it gives God a full picture. It gives us a, a big picture of God. He's not just loving, but he's also just, which really enables him to be loving. Psalms 7:11 says that God is a righteous judge. That's an important aspect of God's character. And <clears throat> there's so much to know about God, so much that he wants us to know about him that we are incapable of understanding. And so you know what God did? Well, I'll, I'll tell you a verse. Um, God really, really wants us to know him. And so Jesus expresses this in, in John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, have, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. We have this amazing opportunity to get to know God and explore his characteristics and his nature and, and, and all his amazing infinite attributes for all eternity. I think that's exciting. But if we're going to explore God's infinite characteristics for eternity, how do we explore them today? How do we get to know God today? In order for us to be able to know God, God came down to earth and, and he put himself in this um, human form so that we could understand him. In John 17, 3-4, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the second commandment. Don't make idols of me. Here's what I'm really like. I think that's just amazing that God would do that. And the fact that God would put himself into this human form and, and express himself and give us this understanding of his glory and his worth and, uh, and allow us to express this adoration and praise back, it tells me that God, God wants us to know him. In Hebrews 1 verse 3, it says of Jesus that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That infinite creator of the universe puts himself into our situation so we can understand him. Part of our understanding of the second commandment has to include the fact that, that God's saying, don't make an idol because I made you. Right? The, Think about it. In um, Genesis 1, verse 26, uh, it talks about God making us in his image, in his likeness. And in the second commandment, it says, don't make a likeness of anything on earth or in heaven. Why? Because God already made a likeness of himself. Not, Not one that we should worship, but something that illustrates his creativity on earth. We were given dominion in the beginning, and... And so I think God intended that our dominion would be an expression of his own character to the creatures that he gave us dominion over. But then sin marred our, our um, reflective properties, you might say. <laughs> and so instead of reflecting God's nature, we end up, we end up uh, reflecting our own selfishness. And, and so I, God's intention for us was that we would become, or that we would be, in his likeness, you know, his creativity, his uh, love for relationships, his innate uh, desire for equity, and, you know, those are things that, that really demonstrate God to the world. And God's desire after sin is to bring us back to the place where we can reflect his character to the world. I think this is what the last six of the um, Ten Commandments are, are really all about. I was thinking about this idea that we are created in God's image, and I thought, if God is so worthy and we're created in his image, he's given us innate worth. He's given us worth just not for what we do or what we might be, but simply who we are. And so when you look around the room and you see all these interesting faces with minds that are so diverse, some are uh, really great scientists digging into the details, some are excellent pianists and uh, beautiful music comes out. The creativity expressed in all different directions, in all different ways, God designed us as beings with worth. It's important for us as we look around to not diminish the worth of another person by what they do or by what they wear, let's recognize the value that God has given us. Idols can distract us from God. But when God is expressed through us, we are attracting people to God. Isn't that an interesting thought? An idol keeps us from seeing God, but when God is expressed through you, 
It's one of the best ways that people understand who God is. I think that's why in Revelation 14, uh, God describes the remnant people of God as those who follow Jesus wherever he goes and have the Father's name or his character in their foreheads. And then in Revelation 14, 12, he says, here's the call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. When we are honoring and loving and faithful and honest and content, the world sees a God who's trustworthy and just, faithful and selfless, giving, kind and good. And, and yet when we disobey those last six of the Ten Commandments, we end up rejecting um, God's law and distorting his character to the world. Instead of, of the true God, what they, say, what they see is a God who's proud, vindictive, deceptive, shallow, dissatisfied, and selfish. In the first sermon on this series, God Wrote Love, uh, I introduced the idea that the law is kind of like this fence. In the Garden of Eden, it was an imaginary fence around the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The possibilities are fantastically huge. The limitations are actually quite small. Don't eat from that tree. And I think the law for us is similar. We have a huge possibility of exploring all these, these different facets of how we can um, worship God in honoring the second command. But uh, there's no way we could cover all of that expansive ideas, like what is worship and exactly who is this God we're worshiping, and we don't have time. And, and we've recognized already that we don't even have the ability in our current form. But there are two conclusions that I'd like to leave you with, uh, two brief ideas. The first takeaway is that this command frees us up the command to not have idols, not have misconceptions about God, it frees us up to understand who God really is. What would we see if our minds were opened and willing to understand God as he is expressing himself through Jesus and through God's word? I think that's really an important step that we can take. Put away our misconceptions and say, God, who are you? The second takeaway is that God is sending us into the world as as his likeness, a representation of him, a reflection of him. Not to be worshipped, but to let the world taste the goodness of God. So I'd like to ask you to make a commitment with me. The first aspect of the commitment would be to explore who God really is, to not be limited by your current misperceptions, whatever they might be, or your, or your ideas, but to just say, God, show me your glory like Moses did on the mountain, and open God's word and find everything you can about Jesus and his character and his works and his goodness. Find everything you can about descriptions of God and just really try to understand who God is to the best of your ability. Would you make that commitment with me? The second commitment is to allow the Holy Spirit to write God's law on your heart so that as you go into the world, you will represent God. Father in heaven, we give you our lives today. Let us be the testament that the world sees of you. Write whatever you will on our hearts so that others can see your goodness through us. And help us to understand you. You are beyond our comprehension, but I know that you want us to know you, and you've given us ways that we can through Jesus. So please help us as we explore your word and try to understand Jesus for ourselves and give us a good understanding of you. And we just pray this in your name and for your glory's sake. Amen.